0: Eamon de Valera survived his own scheduled execution in 1916 by a matter of hours. He then emerged from a sentence of life imprisonment as the leader of the Republican movement. He spent the majority of the Irish War of Independence exhorting money and attention from an American audience, rather than leading the revolutionary fight at home. He built Sinn Féin into a political powerhouse, only to cannibalize it after a disagreement over the treaty to end the war in his nation's favor. His rhetoric and refusal to accept the ideas of his trusted colleagues plunged the nation into a civil war, which saw a significant number of Ireland's political elite murdered in the streets. At different times, de Valera led the Irish Republican army. At other times, he was willing to let them perish in prison during their hunger-strike protests against him. He had encouraged Ireland to accept famine-like conditions in order to pursue his economic war, promising them that they would be better off in the long run. Eamon adapted even that statement to the moment, as he later justified his people's suffering as the impetus for the return of the Irish ports, something that allowed him to maintain Irish neutrality ...throughout the entirety of World War II. Despite the neutral stance, the first half of the 1940s saw invasion plans... ...drawn up by the British and Germans, bombing campaigns against Dublin... ...as well as character assassination plots by the Americans. At the end of World War II, de Valera was now in his mid-50s... ...with deteriorating eyesight, a declining international reputation and little time remaining to finish his life's work of full Irish independence. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assists in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon Irish politician Amon de Valera. Episode number six, his legacy. Although his reputation had been tarnished internationally, including the fact that Ireland's ascension to the newly created United Nations was vetoed by the Russians, World War II had only served to strengthen Amon's popularity domestically. Opinion abroad, however, was a different story. Worried about his own declining reputation, Amon offered three million in relief to aid war-torn European countries. To Ireland's relief, they were later granted access to Western Marshall relief aid, despite their wartime neutrality. Until the American aid arrived, the three million sent to the continent meant that wartime rationing at home would have to continue. With the fighting over, there was time to examine what had actually occurred during the war. Opposition parties posed what appeared to be a simple question in July of 1945, asking de Valera whether or not Ireland was a republic, for nobody seems to know. Amon gave the simple answer of yes, we are. This began a debate in the Dáil to which Amon wrote a 150-page brief that included two encyclopedias and four dictionaries to help him define the word Republic. One of the courses that I teach is Competitive Debate. I regularly encourage my students to overload their opponents with an unreasonable amount of defensive arguments when I know that our position is weak. From a strong position, you don't need hundreds of pages for defense, or multiple definitions, as the truth is relatively easy to defend. In debate, an avalanche of evidence in defense of your position is typically a sign of weakness rather than strength. The opposition predictably pointed out that relying on dictionaries to determine a nation's status was both humiliating and degrading. Whatever Eamon thought, the British still behaved like Ireland was a part of the Commonwealth. King George even sent personalized gifts and messages for all Irish citizens who achieved their 100th birthday or diamond wedding anniversary. A decade later, Eamon would claim that the lack of clarity regarding Ireland's status as a republic was purposeful and advantageous, believing that it allowed them to shift their position to whichever was most beneficial in the moment. This clearly is another example of Eamon rewriting his own history. Every moment of his adult life had been devoted to trying to separate Ireland from England. Believing that he always saw the benefits to remaining tied to Britain is a farce. Post-World War II Europe was an economic mess. Ireland and the other neutral states were not spared the devastation of the post-World War Reconstruction. Rather than returning to Ireland, those that had emigrated for wartime jobs remained abroad, becoming a part of the permanent workforce of their new nations. Worse, an additional 30,000 left each year as unemployment in Ireland skyrocketed. This was in part due to the fact that England removed all restrictions on Irish immigration in order to rebuild their own economy. Ireland also had a particularly difficult harvest in 1946. 100,000 tons of wheat were at risk of spoiling in the fields, and Amon had to request for volunteers to march out from the cities on weekends in order to save waterlogged crops. It got worse in 1947, where there was remarkably only 16 hours of sunshine for the entire month of February. The overcast conditions came to engulf Amon as Dublin's teachers voted 915 to 47 in favor of a strike, after de Valera, a former teacher who once refused to bend over demands for hot chocolate, refused to bend at all during these negotiations. He spoke as if it was a war, demanding the teachers' unconditional surrender. Here's an excerpt of a letter that he wrote to a coalition of striking teachers who were members of his political party, Fianna Fáil. He stated, The government cannot give way to strike action. I feel personally the teachers entered this course without due consideration. My advice to them is that they should return to their duties and save themselves and the children from further hardship. There is no better way of ending the situation, and the sooner that is realized by everyone, the better. As the strike went on, Amon called in the detectives to roughly arrest the approximately 70 teachers who had dressed up in Amon's signature black trench coat and rushed the pitch at halftime of a soccer final. He further ruffled feathers when he subsidized rising food prices by offsetting them with sin taxes. The price of bread would go down by 11%, sugar by 33%, and the price of tea was reduced by an astounding 55%. Liquor, however, went up by 6 pence per glass, beer rose 3 pence per pint, a pack of cigarettes cost 4 pence more. Additionally, trips to the movie theater were taxed as were dog racing and professional boxing match tickets. The wine tax was doubled. These tax increases showed tremendous political courage, or stupidity, with a national election coming one year later in 1948. The Fall had been in power for 15 years, and there was a feeling that the pendulum was due to swing the other way. Eamon further limped into the 1948 elections under assault from corruption accusations regarding his family. While investigators should have looked into what Eamon's family was doing with the Irish press, instead it was an Irish whiskey scandal that attached itself to the Longfellow. The Locke Distillery had been a part of Irish culture since the 1780s. The Locke Brothers had been instrumental in developing small batch craft brewing, that has become en vogue in the 21st century. During the Second World War, whiskey shortages became common, and the distillery attempted to profit off these shortages by blending the stock with raw spirits straight from the stills. The result was an occasionally lethal cocktail that made the distillery a small fortune. They then turned around after the war and attempted to sell their factory to a shady Swiss businessman and an English gentleman-slash-crook. That man had previously been convicted of bribing politicians in Switzerland to introduce greyhound racing. A Fianna Fall senator was involved in the deal, and Amon's son wound up with a very impressive-looking gold watch as a sweetener for the deal. Despite the fact that Locke's whiskey was killing their patrons— the Irish people didn't want foreigners coming in and interfering with their distilleries. Once the door to corruption had been cracked open, there was a floodgate of accusations, including the fact that de Valera had lent some money to a Bolshevik delegation during his American tour in 1921. The Russian Jewels scandal claimed that de Valera was a Bolshevik mastermind who had successfully laid the foundations of communism in Ireland. Colorfully, the tabloids began to refer to De Valera's Ireland as a Bolshevik pawn shop. After demanding a hearing and being cleared by the government, which amounted to his own party clearing his actions, Dev went into furious campaign mode. For 34 straight days, he campaigned across the 26 southern counties for Fianna Fáil candidates. He traveled 3,473 miles a distance that is 1,000 miles further than New York City to Los Angeles. He spoke at 90 different meetings in every constituency but one, averaging three speeches in different locations per day. His official speeches totaled 63 hours and 28 minutes, with the average being 42 minutes and the longest coming in at an astounding two hours. No one political party seemed capable of threatening the Fianna Fáil stranglehold on Ireland. But the 1948 election turned out to be different in a number of ways. Prior to the election, all other political parties, both those on the left and the right, had privately agreed that they would enter into a coalition against Fianna Fáil. De Valera, it seems, had alienated his allies, including the Labour Party by ignoring their priorities in favor of his own. It had begun to feel as though Amon was a government of one. This power-sharing agreement meant that Dev was unknowingly running in what was the equivalent of a two-party system. The results for Fianna Fáil were decent by traditional Irish measures. They dropped seven points off their prior national vote, but that was to be expected after a difficult beginning to the post-World War era. They returned 68 TDs, eight less than the prior election. Worse, however, was that Fianna Fall was six seats short of an outright majority. Still, Amon, who remained in the dark, did not worry too much. After all, the Labour Party, his traditional allies, had 14 seats, and there were 12 independents that had been elected. All he needed to do was to get six of them to throw their lot in with Fianna Fall, and he would be returned to power. John Costello stood in the way. He was able to convince all other parties to oppose de Valera's ascension to power. It was a personal dislike of Amon rather than any policies that brought the coalition together the National Labor Party put the final nail in the hopes of Amon. They were frustrated with how he had treated rural workers, pensioners, and other low-income groups, who are always more adversely affected by any sin taxes. Officially, he lost the vote to Costello by a total of 75 to 70. The party was confused and unsure who to blame for the loss. In all likelihood, no one was to blame. After 15 years of one party in power, it was just time to experience political change. De Valera predictably sidestepped any personal blame for the defeat and was reconfirmed as party leader. The general feeling among the party was that they had lost power in a fluke circumstance. No one accepted the fact that the way that Amon had flaunted his power and personally attacked those who were out of power had any effect on the decision for everyone to join forces against him. Seeking a scapegoat, he chose to blame the electoral system of proportional representation, despite the fact that he personally had written that system into the 1937 Constitution. Interestingly enough, de Valera claimed that each of the parts of the Constitution that he had desired never received a complaint. It was only the portions that he had personally disagreed with that received negative commentary. Besides rallying against proportional representation, Dev, as a mere member of the Dáil, was able to pay more attention to the Irish press, launching a Sunday edition that became the most widely circulated paper in the country. He also went on tour to Australia, New Zealand, India, Singapore, Burma, Canada, and Israel. In Canada, he had his first encounter with a platypus, afterwards saying, with its web feet, powerful claws, the bill of a duck, and the tail of a lizard, every time in the doll when I see the coalition government assembling, I cannot help thinking of the platypus." Additionally, he returned to America and was disgusted that President Truman only afforded him a 15-minute meeting as a courtesy call. The Irishman's efforts to drive a wedge between the States and England were swiftly rebuffed by America's 34th president. Likewise, the Australians, a fellow British Commonwealth member, had to repeatedly ask him to stop speaking on the partition of Northern Ireland, Amon only heard what he wanted to, however, and upon finishing the meeting he sent word home, proclaiming that the time away was worth it. I have just spoken for an hour and a half countering the false propaganda as to the nature of partition. Once again a simple and formal request in a public setting had gone right over his head. Truman's snub stung Eamon. Later, as a delegate to the first consultative assembly of the Council of Europe, Eamon would nix a photographer's request to stand next to Winston Churchill. De Valera refused for fear of being snubbed publicly. He lost an election for the presidency of that assembly, badly. He returned the next year with the slight still fresh in his mind. During his speech, he grew visibly annoyed at other leaders who were gesturing towards him. His anger grew and grew until the parliamentarian forced him to stand down by banging his gavel so hard that he knocked everything off of his desk. Amen had assumed that the other leaders were making fun of him. In reality, they were just trying to signal to him that his speaking time was up. In April of 1949, Eamon received interesting news. The Costello Coalition government had decided to legally repeal the External Relations Act, the last remaining legal connection to England. His reaction was interestingly mixed. Although independence had been his life mission, his government wouldn't be the one to accomplish it. He ran the gamut through his emotions as though he were five years old. First, saying it didn't matter, because they basically already were independent. Then he told them it was a bad idea, in his thinking, the vagueness of whether they were in or out was beneficial to Ireland. Finally, he dared them to do it, saying that he wouldn't stand in their way. Finally, after it was officially done on April 18th, 1949, he said that it was regrettable that it didn't cover all of Ireland now without a doubt or a question the free state of ireland was legitimized england accepted it and proceeded to pass the british government's ireland bill which guaranteed that the constitutional status of northern ireland would not change without the consent of parliament the coalition government assembled against him finally fell apart in 1951 and new elections were called. Historian David McCullough looks back at 1948 to better understand what will happen next. McCullough believes that Amon's loss in 48 literally forced de Valera to run again in 51. By this point, his eyesight was rapidly declining. He was 63 years old and wasn't able to summon his usual strength on the campaign. Additionally, His main purpose, Irish independence, had already been accomplished. There just wasn't a reason for him to run. The loss in 48, however, meant that he would have to run again if he wanted to go out on top. The lure of power and what it would mean for his legacy seemed to propel him over 2,000 miles during the campaign season, during which Dev would typically go to bed at about 3 a.m. and was up working again at 8 a.m., He eclipsed Costello's 27 town halls with 40 of his own. Throughout the campaign, Amon gave a full-throated assault against the evils of coalition government. He argued that the policy of the coalition was like a drunken man that staggers forwards and backwards, left and right, and then finds himself flat in the mud. The argument stuck, and Fianna Fall was returned with a total of 69 TDs. That made it once again the largest individual party. But they had only won one more seat than in the previous election. Eamon won his seat in Clare County with the highest vote total in the country. Still, the possibility of another anti-Devalera coalition was in the air. The Irish Times even predicted such, claiming that the people had decided to give the inter-party experiment one more chance. Unwilling to sit out of power for another term, Dev the negotiator began to broker his return to power. He bought off Noel Brown by pledging to improve health services. He then met with Patrick Kogan three times in two days. No one's quite sure what the promise was that swayed him, but in the end he voted for Fianna Fall's return. Frank Fahey agreed to not vote unless it was a tie so long as Fianna Fáil wouldn't oppose his chosen successor when he stepped down. When the election for t finally arrived, de Valera was returned to power by a slim 74-72 vote. The coalition had run its course. In what he expected would be his last term as t Amon ceded most decisions and party control to Fianna Fall's Sean LaMasse. Although he was dedicated to his work, Amon’s best years were far in the distance. His eyesight was so bad by this point that one of his retina had detached itself while he was stooped over to sort papers. His signature took up nearly an entire page, and he was in the Netherlands for nearly three months recovering from one surgery. He memorized his speeches with staff reading everything to him until he got it exactly right. In March of 1954, he had his last remaining tooth extracted. A fiscal conservative to the end, his last real policy was an attempt to reduce spending across Ireland. He once again raised taxes on alcohol and tobacco in order to lower prices on tea, butter, and bread. The Irish Times called it the harshest budget in the history of the state. It had major negative economic effects across Ireland, and facing a likely vote of no confidence, Amon called for a new election in 1954. This time, Amon's campaigning could not pull the party across the line, once the new Congress was seated, de Valera was defeated 78 to 66. He went out gracefully, claiming that he had done what was necessary and paid the price for it. He said, the battle is over. The people have given their decision. We, as a government, did our duty. We faced the unpopularity of the measures necessary to set the country's finances right. They have been set right. The tasks for the future have been made easier and the nation's interests duly safeguarded. The party changed during this period as the opposition. Sean Lamass not only ran the party, but he shifted Fianna Fall's focus away from Amon's ideas. He sacrificed protectionism and encouraged supporting new spending that provided benefits. These policies remained at the forefront when Amon was once again returned to power in the 1957 election. This time, Fianna Fáil won an outright majority with nine seats to spare. Amon, now 75 years old, was in charge, but the party was now running the show. It even seemed as though Lamas was able to persuade de Valera that what was being done was entirely consistent with Fianna Fáil policy a new way of achieving the same end. A perfect example regarded a number of free trade deals signed during this period. De Valera, who had championed protectionism throughout his career, now claimed that free trade had been his policy from the beginning. They introduced a five-year economic plan, whose objectives were comically easy. But there is genius in setting an incredibly low bar for yourself. The party won high marks from voters when they quickly blew past every measure in the plan. Things were looking good for the aging de Valera, who said that as long as this organization wants me, as long as Dahl Iron thinks I am doing my work and can do it, then I stay. That day appeared on the horizon in 1958. A motion finally appeared on the doll floor, criticizing Eamon's role in running the Irish press during his time in office. New evidence had revealed that he owned a significant interest in the paper that he had never divulged. They had also incorrectly assumed that he had stepped down as controlling director while T-Shock. They asked the difficult question of who he was working for, himself or the Irish people. Although de Valera had made other men divest their personal business interests, he had never felt that those rules applied to him. He told the doll that he was quite satisfied in my conscience, and I believe that any fair-minded person will be similarly satisfied, that in the circumstances knowing the exposition in which I was placed with regard to the Irish press before I came here, that there was nothing to suggest that I had been acting all these years in a manner which was inconsistent with the dignity of the office which I hold. The outcome of the vote was never in doubt. Party-line voting alone ensured that Amon was not in danger from any of these accusations. But the appearance was enough for the party to begin to plan their future without their 75-year-old founder. Sean Lamas convinced De Valera that it was time to step down as leader of the Dahl and instead run for the open seat of president, a position that involved largely ceremonial functions. Lamas said that Amon had passed the point of no return in being effective as a party leader. At this point, according to him, Amon didn't interfere in Dahl business. He never asked why you did anything. New ideas did not come from him at all. In a two-man presidential race, Eamon won 56% of the vote. Although Ireland continued to have their man, Sinead was crushed by this decision. Incredibly private, the role of Irish First Lady had ceremonial duties that had to be done in public. Retirement would have to wait once again. Amon faithfully carried out the offices of the president, which were all ceremonial, for two seven-year terms. Fianna Fáil lost some seats without Amon front and center, but Lamas was able to hold on to power during this time. As president, Amon was able to go to his first rugby game since 1913. He had stayed away because he didn't want it raised as a political matter. He also got more time with his family, teaching his grandchildren math, and even practicing archery using a homemade bow. Although I'm not quite sure of the wisdom in letting Eamon, who only had 20% of his eyesight at this point, hold a bow. He even taught a number of grandchildren how to pull their first pint of Guinness from a tap. Some of his American shine came back when Irish American John F. Kennedy visited in 1963. Sinead was said to have dreaded the event for all the fuss it would bring. JFK was so popular that upon arrival at the garden party, the guests mobbed him in what was described as an event of which the entire nation ought to feel ashamed. In the fracas, a bishop was dragged to the ground and had his cape ripped. Amon returned to the guests without the president, and showcasing a sense of humor, told his guests that Mr. Kennedy is very sorry he cannot meet you all. You will have to take it that he has already shaken hands with you. The two men then privately planted a tree together to mark the occasion. After the much younger Kennedy ceremonially shoveled dirt on the newly planted tree, Amon one-upped him by energetically shoveling several spades over his. Eamon de Valera left the presidency after his second seven-year term was completed. It was 1973, and he had reached his 90th birthday. By this point, he had served as the leading figure in Irish life for the last 57 years. His public career, which began in 1916 at Boland's Bakery, ended there as well. At an event organized by Fianna Fáil and featuring speeches extolling his life of service, He was given one last send-off by his country. The long-overdue retirement for a man who had always claimed to have been a reluctant politician was short. In January of 1975, a little over seven months after leaving office, his wife, Sinead, died on the day before their 65th wedding anniversary. He survived her by only eight months. As one would anticipate, Eamon de Valera's legacy is multifaceted. It is evident that he played a pivotal role in achieving Irish independence, the constitutional overhaul, and maintaining neutrality during World War II. Simultaneously, he stands as a central figure in the Irish Civil War and the Economic War. Having explored his accomplishments, let's delve deeper into a lingering question. Was Eamon de Valera an autocratic leader? He was acutely aware of this accusation and took great pains on numerous occasions to refute it. His historical debut coincided with the 1916 Rising, an event that sought to seize power without a democratic mandate. Similarly, during the treaty split, de Valera diverged from the majority's will, utilizing propaganda to rationalize his actions. Yet other aspects of his legacy paint a different picture one that reflects a commitment to democracy. In the face of losing popular support, de Valera gracefully stepped down from his position. He subjected the Constitution to a comprehensive referendum vote by the people, demonstrating a genuine dedication to democratic principles. Throughout election cycles, he tirelessly articulated his vision for Ireland, working overtime to connect with the people. While the record doesn't support the reputation of Amon de Valera as an authoritarian, the label persists. If one finds oneself repeatedly stating, I am not a dictator, not at all, far from it, as Amon did in June 1951, then a perception problem may indeed exist. The notion of autocracy likely stems from Amon's behind-the-scenes approach. Nicholas Mansurg characterized him as a man of inflexible will, ready to compromise only when he has got what he wants. The American press astutely noted, he does not plead, argue, or or orate. He explains, De Valera held an unwavering vision of what he deemed to be right, and his earthly purpose seemed to be convincing others of its righteousness. Michael B. Yates shed light on Amon's strategy, explaining that he would allow the debate on a contentious matter to drag on until everyone was exhausted, expressing no opinion himself. Then he would summarize at some length what had been said, finished by saying, in the light of all these arguments, he felt that such and such a decision would be best, and we would agree. It was a form of peace achieved through exhaustion. For those unwilling to fall in line, even casual conversations turned into battlegrounds. The Prime Minister of Australia described feeling as though he was being lectured by the Irishman, even on matters concerning his own country. Amon de Valera skillfully masked his inclination towards autocracy by emphasizing that all decisions were reached unanimously as a group. The treaty split, however, posed a significant challenge for him as it stands as one of the rare instances where de Valera couldn't rally his party behind a single decision. In almost every other instance of dissent, he employed tactics such as dismissing opposing members or calling for snap elections to ensure a majority in his favor. Historians characterize this leadership style as more akin to a chief than a chairman. Sean Lamass remarked that De Valera always wanted unanimity and sought this by the simple process of keeping the debate going until those in the minority relented out of sheer exhaustion. Fianna Fall member James Ryan echoed this sentiment, stating that if agreement wasn't reached by the discussion's end, De Valera would postpone the decision for another day. A mere majority wasn't sufficient. The party had to be united. In the early days, unity meant aligning with de Valera's thoughts. The second question surrounding Eamon's legacy pertains to his role in Irish independence, a topic that reveals a distinct focus on his part but leaves a mixed legacy. Amon de Valera demonstrated a deep commitment by risking his life and accepting a death sentence for his involvement in the Rising. Moreover, he jeopardized his political career on numerous occasions to further the cause of Irish sovereignty. This commitment extended to adopting fiscally conservative budgets to prevent economic indebtedness to larger nations. However, despite his unwavering dedication, some members of the Irish Republican Army viewed de Valera as a traitor to the cause. Their argument points to three key pieces of evidence. Firstly, Amon eliminated political competitors who were also IRA members, notably Michael Collins and Blue Shirts leader Owen O'Duffy. Although Amon may not have directly caused their demise, he escalated crises that led to their deaths. Secondly, critics highlight that Eamon did not achieve Irish independence himself. That achievement belongs to the coalition government that succeeded him. While he did vote for the measure, his speeches leading up to that vote suggested a preference for ambiguous ties to England over full independence— Finally, detractors, including Eamon himself, acknowledge his failure to reattach Northern Ireland to the 26 southern counties. Although this goal may have been unattainable, it remains as his most significant regret. While Eamon discussed the partition issue, he was willing to concede it in exchange for other priorities, such as the return of ports and the legalization of the Irish language. Many Republicans find it challenging to forgive him for this stance, and on multiple occasions advocated invading the six northern counties, even if it meant war with England. Throughout his life, Amon had the ability to reinvent himself, a crucial skill for anyone engaged in politics for as long as he was. This sometimes involved reshaping the truth and rewriting the past. Despite participating in interviews with numerous historians, Eamon never completed his own autobiography, a project initiated in his 30s. Putting events on paper could make it significantly more challenging to alter his perspective later on. As historian David McCullough notes, the Ireland de Valera knew and helped to shape, however, did not long outlive him. In 1995, two decades after his death, This fact became evident. The Irish press closed, the Constitution was amended to allow for divorce, and Neil Jordan was shooting a film entitled Michael Collins. Strangely, it's conceivable that de Valera is content to be proven right when he asserted, It is my considered opinion that in the fullness of time, history will record the greatness of Collins, and it will be recorded at my expense." If there's one thing Amon de Valera cherished more than anything else, it was being proven correct. In his quest to be viewed favorably by history, Amon de Valera went to great lengths. Yet history, with its 2020 hindsight, remains unyielding. T.P. O'Neill was tasked with writing the official biography of Amon de Valera. In an unorthodox arrangement, O'Neill was paid in installments initially assuming it was to enable him to focus solely on condensing Amon's life into a single volume. However, he soon discovered that his client was also his editor. To move on to Chapter 2, O'Neill had to get Chapter 1 approved. Even after three years of work, the book faced a five-year delay as Harold Harris was enlisted to rewrite substantial portions to correct the historian's accounting of Amon's life as de Valera remembered it. So what does this all mean? Likely, Amon's legacy is as intricate as his life was. Expect cycles of revisionism surrounding Ireland's greatest leader. Publications oscillating between highlighting his greatest achievements and spotlighting his lowest moments. Where do we stand now? In 2011, elected Irish TDs were asked to name the politician living or dead that they most admired. Among Fianna Fáil members, ten named Sean Lamas, while none named the originator of their party, De Valera. For those who admire Amon, be assured that his time in the spotlight will come again. Amon himself had a clear view of how history cycles through narratives, noting when we have done our best, we can, as united people, take whatever may befall with calm, courage, and confidence, that this old nation will survive. And if death should come to many of us, death is not the end. Alter the statement slightly, focusing on Amon rather than the people of Ireland, and it reveals that the Longfellow story is far from complete. For when we have done our best, we can take whatever may befall with calm, courage, and confidence that this old man's legacy will survive. His death is not the end. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowery at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.